Hello everybody, what's up? You're listening to I Was Just Wondering with me, Tom Salmon. The show that dives into music, film and games and everything else in between. My guest on this week's episode is Oliver Harper, a film critic, documentary filmmaker and the creator and presenter of Oliver Harper's retrospectives and reviews on YouTube. We jumped into Oliver's early days of creating his film retrospectives, how he works with Hollywood distribution companies to clear copyright claims on his videos and why he directed and co-edited his first feature-length documentary film, In Search of the Last Action Heroes. So if you're running, stuck in a traffic jam, or sitting behind a desk at work, I hope you enjoy my interview with Oliver. For the people who haven't watched your YouTube channel, Oliver Harper's Retrospective and Reviews, who are you and what's the channel about? <laughs> uh, well, um, I suppose I'm a documentary filmmaker now, after I had my documentary in search the last action heroes released late last year um but before that you know i you could say i was in sort of film critic and uh video editor and um i've been doing a whole youtube thing for since uh since late 2011 and my reviews were essentially kind of mini documentaries themselves kind of retrospectively looking back at movies from the 80s and 90s mainly because those were the films I grew up watching so it's a whole you know YouTube channel based around nostalgia and you know nostalgia is a powerful tool so um, and it seems to uh, you know see, seems to be the most popular thing when it comes to YouTube. Watching your first retrospective video which was on uh, Superman 4 which you posted in 2011 what do you remember about sitting down for the first time to actually work on that first video? I suppose at the time when I started to do this, because um, it was you know, obviously always with, with these things, it always starts out as a hobby because I'd left my job as a sort of projectionist. I got made redundant. Um, it changed because the industry was changing from 35 millimeter film to digital projection. So I kind of got made redundant from that. And I thought, what, 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 what am I going to do? And at the time, obviously I was like many people who start out on YouTube, you're often inspired by other people doing something on the, on the platform or, you know, kind of seeing stuff that sort of that's around you and to sort of, you know, take ideas from, so to speak. And YouTube itself was kind of dominated by uh, the angry reviews, you know. So James Rolfe obviously became extremely popular through his angry video game nerd character and people started basically copying that format. So what you had online was people doing angry reviews on movies and video games. Uh, or TV shows, I suppose. Um, so my approach was something a bit different because I always loved the special features on on movies like that came with laser discs and obviously DVDs, then eventually Blu-rays. Where nowadays, kind of special features really are becoming a sort of niche thing, where they'd be part of like Arrow Film label or the Shout Factory releases, where they actually put time and effort in, where studios don't really do that much anymore. Um, but at the time, it was oh, I was you know I was obsessed with the Alien documentaries and um, and all the you know all the sort of special features you'd find on things like Jurassic Park and so forth. So my approach was really to take something that was a critique on a movie and combine it with an educational aspect. So you had this kind of production information, um, talk about the special effects and the music. Um, and in some cases talk about the video games because obviously I grew up playing video games and, but no one has really incorporated that aspect into reviewing a movie because, because I, I was looking at it as retrospectively, you want, I wanted to cover everything that was kind of 
around that film at the time. So you'd have reviews by other critics, like such as Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, and then you had the toys and the merchandise that came with it. So it was combining everything all into one. And at the time, you know, when I was doing it, I was all trial by error. You know, it was all a learning experience because how I talk now to how I talked then with my voiceovers, it was completely different. You know, nervous kind of wreck doing it or lack the confidence to do a voiceover. And structurally, I, I hadn't really figured out how things were going to play out. But it was all, you know, just um, just a bit of fun. And then as soon as I shared the video with a couple of friends and then on some forums at the time, which you did, and and it sort of got a lot of views and people just wanted more. So I just continued that process until it became this um, something I could do or take seriously um, as a sort of career. So at which point in terms of your retrospectives, I mean, which particular video was the sort of jumping off point of like, right, this can be a career and I can move forward with this? Um, it wasn't until about 2014, perhaps, um, late 2014, where you know I was approached by a network and said, hey, we can monetize your work um, so you could you know, make some money out of this. At the time, it was a bit more problematic going through Google um, to sort of Google AdSense. And I think it was kind of easy to go through a network because you had all these kind of safety belts in place, I suppose. But nowadays, it's kind of pointless having a network. Um, they just take a percentage of your money for doing nothing, you know. Um, so I, I actually I do need to sort that out. <laughs> so, um, but I don't think it was one particular video, Tom. It was kind of, well, I think once the views had got to a certain amount, you could you could sort of calculate how much you could earn, um, and then you think, oh, I could actually do this as you know, as a living wage, and I can pay rent, I can pay bills, and I can do other things like socialize or whatever, and not just be constantly worrying about, oh my god, how am I? you know, am I going to have to stop doing this and get a <laughs> proper job? <laughs> you know, as people like to say, but, you know, anything's a job unless when you get paid for it. So, um, but um, no, it wasn't a particular video, um, but there was this sense that um, things were becoming like f- f- going in my favor that I could do this, but I had to go, I had a difficult um, time trying to, because a lot of the videos, once I published them in 2011, to that point some like copyright claims which hadn't been resolved so they had a lot of high views on them so i had to you know start working relationships so to speak with the studios by contacting their copyright departments letting them know who i was what i did and showing them that what i was doing wasn't like a um you know uh that it wasn't going to affect their business in any way it was actually going to help them like they people would actually go uh, watch the review and go oh wow i'll go buy that film or whatever um so they saw it as a kind of benefit for them so that was really nice in in a way so a lot of the copyright claims got released uh, got released on the on my site so i could then do this for do it for a living and not feel worried that something was going to crop up one day and bite me on the bum you know with copyright claims there's the idea of like fair use as well, isn't there? And that's been quite a hot topic in terms of people making videos and other people's sort of like content. And I wonder if that's something, especially in the beginning, that's something you were, you must have been very aware of that, I guess. I was actually quite naive at the time when I started doing YouTube and getting these copyright claims. I was like, oh, what's this? You know, and um, I kind of, you know, it's, it's, I wasn't naive to the point where I was stupid and didn't know what it was, but it was, it was like how you approach disputing the claims that was where i was really naive um and i'd learned my lessons through that point on how to sort of speak to people in the right way to sort of make them understand you know that it wasn't you know 
I wasn't a problem to them, to so to speak. But yeah, fair use definitely as as, as US copyright law. That's not doesn't really account for UK. So UK is fair dealing, which is a lot more stricter. <laughs> but um, in terms of copyright, how it's managed on the platform generally comes from the US divisions of these film studios. So you have to approach them generally. So. Yeah, I mean, you can always argue fair use if you if you feel you're right in your way to argue that. But if you just uploaded a bunch of clips, you haven't done anything to them, you have not provided a critique or anything like that, then you're not going to win any argument. Um, you could, I've had some people upload, seen up, people upload entire movies. And someone, I think someone at Universal Pictures have told me, like, they tried to claim that was fair use. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, you can't, that's, uploading a whole movie is not fair use. Um People are a, a tad uneducated on copyright and like to push the fact that they know a lot but don't actually know anything. So, come actually come making my documentary recently. The whole fair use process was really kind of a bit of an eye opener um, to you know to sort of use film clips, you know, for critique purposes for a product that would sell on you know digital and physical availability. So, um, yeah, that was. Um, bit of a challenge but we sort of managed to get it get it you know get it done and passed and all all good in terms of um you know get it in terms of it getting insured did you actually use clips from the film in the documentary i'm assuming oh yeah so for example they're talking about rambo or terminator we've got clips from those movies um so you just have to make sure things are credited correctly and how long you use that clip for you couldn't have you couldn't use one long clip for 30 seconds or whatever you have to sort of make sure that you're using it in a limited way to make sure what you're talking about, whoever or whoever you're you are interviewing is talking about, that clip is used in the in the correct way. And I just want to sort of like pick up on a little bit on the um, so your most popular retrospective video that I looked up was um, Rambo: First Blood. Just to jump in with you a little bit. Why do you think that uh, retrospective on that film and that character has remained so popular with viewers? Um, I suppose because Rambo really um, is a perfect example of the of of an action hero. And the the franchise has, has has gone on since the early '80s till now because we had a Rambo film out last year, which wasn't particularly good. It was, you know, it was pretty good for its sort of action and violence, I suppose, but it wasn't really a Rambo film. It didn't feel like one. But it's it's interesting to see how how the character has endured. It's a bit like Rocky as well. Rocky's still a popular character, and Stallone keeps bringing him back, and it still sells to an audience. And in terms of Rambo. First Blood, which is still the best Rambo movie. It's interesting that the popularity of that video is probably down to you know the, the recent movie. I think what what actually works in my favour sometimes is when I've reviewed a particular movie and then it's a sequel years later, or they reboot it, so people end up just searching for the first movie or the one pre, you know previously, and to sort of get a bit of a flavor to what the you know the franchise or you know that character is about so that's it works for me sometimes for example there's um like when bad boys came out i thought well you've got to time it the third bad boys movie time it with a retrospective on the first film so things kind of so there's an audience there at that point in time um but yeah you have to sort of play your cards right i suppose (laughs) in terms of Sylvester Sloan's career in like Schwarzenegger in terms of where it sit because you had like Terminator Dark Fate which was a return back to sort of Terminator character again and then Sloan coming back and doing Rambo again and they were both maligned for very sort of like different reasons 
I suppose with Stallone, he always had more range than Arnold. You know, he could do the sort of down and trodden character. He could, he could, you know, he's got those sort of, he does, there's always those moments in his movies where he's got that sort of puppy dog eyes where you feel really sorry for him. And, you know, you always get past, he always obviously criticised because of how he speaks and stuff. And, but he's an insanely intelligent man. And he's, I think he's pretty made more errors throughout his career than Arnold. Arnold knew when to sort of stop to a certain point with his career. He went to politics, but he chose his movies quite wisely. Um, he's got a few mistakes during the 90s, like Junior and Batman and Robin and Jingle All the Way, which has kind of a, got a cult following, but it's, it's a silly film. But um, Stallone himself, you know, he'd, he continued actually doing those action movies and made a few, tried to do the comedy movies in the early 90s, but um, by come like, you know, 96 with like daylight. And then, you know, he did it. He did have a sort of career resurgence to a, so to speak with Copland. And then he came back with ICU, which was a massive bomb. Um, and then he had, he had like failure after failure. And then he sort of came back with Rocky Balboa. So he always knew what to, what to sort of pull out card out of his sleeve to sort of give him that sort of leg up. And he, and he's maintained that sort of success really with things like the expendables, and the escape plan, obviously the first one, they've made sequels to that, which aren't very good. But yes, yeah, so Stallone is stuck with it, you know, with the action genre. Um, and, you know, it hasn't sort of tried to slow down. I think maybe now he's, he's kind of taking a step back after the last Rambo film. But thinking about it now, Stallone was a much more in charge of his own career because he was a writer, director and creator characters for him. Whereas uh, I guess like Schwarzenegger was just a vehicle for other people's visions, um, you know, like Cameron and the Terminator. I guess to a certain extent, like he didn't have the same sort of, I think I'm trying to think of other iconic Schwarzenegger characters other than just those sort of standalone movies like Commando and The Running Man um, that were just vehicles for him, but weren't necessarily enduring characters per se. No, he never really had a sort of a sort of specific character that would define, uh, the Terminator sort of defined who he was and we'd always be famous for that, but it wasn't like for Rocky, you know, for Stallone, he had Rocky and Rambo. So they all had, you know, both had sequels. But still, you know, Arnold had, you know, I, also, also with Arnold, he's he worked best under really good directors. You know, if, if he had a director that wasn't really good at dealing with him, you'd often get a very kind of stiff performance or, you know, be kind of wouldn't quite gel overall. But I think with Stallone, it was in being a director as well. He kind of knew what his strengths were and he also kind of always delivered on that. Obviously, there's kind of other roles which he's played which didn't quite work. But, um, you know, yeah, Arnold, you know, he just... They're always kind of... Um, what's the word? High concept kind of movies he did. I mean, you got The Running Man, you got Predator. I mean, Predator is one of his best movies, I think. Um, he plays, obviously, his character called Dutch, where it's not really a character that is kind of endearing, you know, endearing sort of character once kind of come back and return somewhere else. It's just a kind of, it's just Arnold really, you know, uh, being, trying to take the role very seriously. I think actually one of his better dramatic performances at the time, and then he sort of, you know, lampooned himself and the genre in Last Action Hero. And then he did like Eraser, which was kind of this okay kind of action film, but that was kind of the last of his big successful movies. I mean, you're somewhat of an expert now, I guess, or more so you have directed In Search of the Last Action Heroes, which you premiered at the Castle Cinema December 18th, 2019. And like, how do you actually become involved with this sort of project? 
Well, it, it was very early on um, in 2018. I'd met a gentleman called Robin Block, who runs um, Creative VC, which is this company that sort of you know, helped crowdfund these projects and produce them. Robin, has, Robin was, had been following my work for a long time. He'd uh, been a patron of mine and he'd sort of wanted to sort of meet up with me, sort of discuss some sort of ideas about sort of future projects. Because Robin had come from TV and had done had done documentary filmmaking for a number of years, but he'd kind of changed had to change a career and he wasn't very happy with it and wanted to get back in back into that world. And he said to me, look, let's let's do something. Let's do some sort of this because he'd seen my Superman 4 documentary called The Man of Steel and Glass or Glass and Steel uh, about the shooting locations of Superman 4. And he's really impressed by that. He thought it's like very much like a TV kind of you know level of quality, but he wanted to sort of expand it to feature length, something of that nature. And and I said to him, look, let, let's let's do something on the 80s action or 90s action because that, that seemed to be the most popular sort of genre and sort of topic on my channel. So we said, okay, well, let's let's sort of get this idea on paper and sort of see how it goes and see if we can create a structure around it. And then uh, during the sort of uh, crowdfunding process, we had a writer called uh, Timon Singh come on board who had written a, a book called Born to be Bad, which was basically about the, the action 80s action stars or villains of those movies who he interviewed and he had all his contacts with them. So it kind of made it easier for us to sort of get things going and trying to get people involved. And, and it, you know, we had two sort of crowdfunding uh, promotions, one for Kickstarter, then Indiegogo. And, it, you know, we raised nearly uh, £100,000, pounds, and which is which was wonderful. But obviously the cost of making... Um, a feature film in terms of uh, legal costs, insurance, fair use and fulfillment eats up quite a lot of that budget, which, you know, you always kind of think, you know, you just want to count for those sort of things. Think, oh, okay, we should be covered. And you're like, whoa, <laughs> that's actually a lot more than we'd, uh, you know, sort of estimated. But we did it. We got it through and got it done. And the process of that was seeing how the genre had evolved from, it kind of changed a little bit during the process, but it was really about oh, the story I wanted to tell was how the, action genre had changed from the from the start really on the 50s with the westerns and worked its way through through the bond films and the spy and espionage movies of the 70s the gritty thrillers come the 80s where you have rambo and terminator and and so forth and then come the 90s where things were shifting to appeal to younger kids so you had things like street fighter or action movies that are trying to they were no, no longer 18 rated where you had Total Recall, which was a hundred million dollar budget movie called maybe about probably about 60, 70, but they spent so much on advertising on that film. But that was an 18 rated movie. You know, you wouldn't see, you wouldn't imagine seeing like now the, the Rock, you know, Dwayne The Rock Johnson being in some sci-fi movie that was 18 rated. Now it cost like a hundred million. No way would you see that today. Um, so that was what I thought was always interesting. Where come the nineties, they started the action movies started to be fifteen rated. Then they went down to twelve. So they had to appeal to a wider audience. Maybe because the audience was kind of shrinking, because the you know, action genre now is kind of more of a niche. But it's also they call it um, it's, it's, it's like a bleed of it, like um, a genre bleed, where you've got action in science fiction movies, you've got action in fantasy movies. So you can't sort of pinpoint. Like the the Marvel movies are action movies, but then you don't really you don't really put them in that category. You put John Wick in that category of action movies, but Marvel's kind of is is everything. So throughout the documentary, we had to sort of pick and choose what we felt was part of that genre. So yeah, so the story you know, sort of goes from you know the rise and sort of the success of the the genre in the eighties and this kind of 
downward spiral come the late 90s that we saw Stallone and Arnold begin to lose their momentum and popularity and then they sort of come back again. And when you interviewed the actors and directors and writers responsible for some of the biggest Hollywood action films of the 1980s, what was the most eye-opening part for you interviewing those filmmakers? My friend uh, Time and Singh had <laughs> the most fun job really of doing that because 80% were interviewed uh, Time and had kind of taken on that responsibility because he'd written the book and had these working relationships with these people. And he he's one we flew out to LA to do those interviews and sort of um, and get them done, um, which was kind of fine by me really because he had that experience to sort of speed through those things. And I interviewed a, a number of people in the UK. So, you know, I think what, what was interesting is that when you see, obviously I saw, you know, the entire interviews anyway when I got the rushes, as it were. So you see things like Zach Penn, the writer of Ready Player One and Last Action Hero and Graham Yost, the writer of Speed, for example. They are extremely knowledgeable on the genre and pop culture. You know, they really know their stuff. If 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 It's like um, for Timon because he loved the genre. Once he can sort of talk about something that's slightly geeky, they will like open up and go, oh my God, and start talking about the same thing, the same level. So not feel like restrained in, in a way to sort of hold back and just give you the sort of the usual spiel. They, you know, they were open to talk about what they loved about the past and what they feel things work today and don't work today. You know, speaking to Brad Fidel, I did, the composer of The Terminator, was sort of hearing his kind of experience that he didn't like action movies. He's not a fan of them. So you had, I had to sort of shift the line of questioning to sort of be more about the process of, of, of composing the music. And, and I got to sort of, you know, discuss other things with him like Johnny Mnemonic and working on T2, uh, Terminator 2 3D, the ride thing. So things that I knew that probably wouldn't make the documentary ultimately, but for me as a fan of his work, I was like, right, I can ha- now have this opportunity to sort of grill him, grill him on my sort of geeky sort of thoughts on these other films. And what kind of fascinates me about it is there's a very real human element to meeting actors um, like Bill Duke and Eric Roberts that played large in life characters on screen they're getting up there in age. So it must be quite something to sort of start unpicking that myth of these sort of like screen icons and these characters, but then actually get the opportunity to sort of interview them or as you say, like watch them being sort of like interviewed on screen. And was there anything from them as sort of like people that really sort of fascinated you? Um, some of them, uh, some of the you know actors uh, and particularly writers were very open about their dealings in the past, how they've made these movies. Obviously as Many of them, as you sort of, as you, if you're a fan of a particular film and you speak to an actor and you go, oh my God, what was it like working on that film? Often, often for them, it was just a job, you know, it wasn't this kind of, they didn't know the film was going to be popular. So it seems like Stephen E. D'Souza, the writer of Die Hard, you know, he is, he, he can, he's like a, a talking machine. He was talk at top speed about everything. And he, you know, interviews like, original interviews, like 90 minutes long. And he was talking about Judge Dredd and how, you know, the film was written to be PG, the director, well, PG-13, the director, Danny Cannon, was shooting an R-rated, 18-rated Judge Dredd film. And and they saw the rushes and like, oh, my God, you can't, you can't do this. You know, he was, so Stephen was so open about, like, the process of, like, writing and dealing with the studios and dealing with, especially the MPAA, um, which is obviously the BBFC equivalent, where, you know, Judge Dredd was submitted to be, to be rated. It was given an X rating. So that's, you know, that is eight beyond 18, I suppose. And then they cut it again. It was still, still X-rated. Then they had to do some more trimming to get it down to be an R. And he was open as well about the deals they did where they had all these toys done for Judge Dredd 
uh, in 19 for the Stallone movie, and this and they all panicked and just went, no, we, we can't we can't be be involved and promote this film because of the sort of the level of violence. But what we got, you know, at the end of the day was a film that was kind of cut down and wasn't as violent as we wanted it to be because Judge Dredd or the, from 2000 AD comics was really violent. So I would love to one day see this kind of work print of the Stallone Judge Dredd that's got all the gore in it because apparently they'd built, you uh, can proc now, the, uh, one of the guys who's in like uh, one of the bad guys, and he gets his arms pulled apart by this robot in the film. And in the film, you just see, you see his arms get extended and then it cuts to like a bit of blood falling on the robot's feet. But they actually built like this kind of robotic, uh, you know, like a, a replica of uh, prop now and he gets pulled apart on camera and you see it. Um, so I was like, wow, man, I'd love to see that. Even though it might be really gross, but <laughs> still, you know, it's also how you approach these people, how you talk to them as well. If you're time and had a really good skill at getting them to open up and be kind of relaxed and talk about what they, you know, what they loved about these movies and, and how, and how they sort of look upon the past and how they view the action genre. Now, um, most of them, you know, prefer, how films were shot and made back then and structurally and with, and with characters. Nowadays, Bill Duke had really cleverly pointed out that a lot of films today that you see the hero, you don't really care about them. And back then, you know, you're concerned about the hero, you didn't want them to get shot. It's like when you watch Aliens, you don't want these characters to get killed off. You get, I was like, when I was younger, seeing Bill Paxton get pulled underground by the alien, I was like, no, you can't have him die. So you know, it seemed like come Alien 3 and have killed off um, Hicks as well, so just carelessly. So yeah, that that really annoyed me. But there's always, you know, with all these interviews, it's 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 just seeing people kind of talk about their past in a sort of loving and caring way. And, and also being honest about it, that, that not everything they did was successful, but they kind of, but it was also interesting seeing them talk about nostalgia but not so like from this kind of fans perspective it was very much done in terms of like this works then but does it still work now but you know it's 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 for us to decide i suppose the fan does decide if it still works and these films like predator terminator come maybe not commando commando is quite cheesy but it's still fun but i'd say predator and the terminators and aliens are probably still like the biggest highlights of the 80s action genre that still work extremely well today I also think with those sort of films, because I'm thinking there is sort of like a nexus point between practical effects and sort of digital effects. And also I was watching your No Escape video as well recently. You sort of break it down and say they were using sort of like models and mats and sort of digital effects. And also what, what surprised me actually just watching that retrospective video as well was just like the sheer scale of it. I think that I mean, they shot for 20 million, but just the amount of extras, like sets and props they sort of built, they, they just seem to be in, in terms of just sheer production value, physical production value rather than sort of like CGI back then that they really had to go to more extreme lengths to put those sort of worlds on screen. Whereas now, and not taking anything away from digital artists and that sort of stuff, but it definitely seems to have sort of swayed um, more into the sort of uncanny valley of, of things. Yeah, definitely. I mean, at the time, you know, they had to shoot, you know, within camera, do it practically. Um, that's, that's always been the sort of argument, you know, you'd have with, you know, the sort of love of these movies in the past because they did things for real for the most part. Obviously, when it came to doing stuff they couldn't do within camera with optical effects and blue screen, it wasn't quite as good as it is now because you've got the analog chemical process of doing these things. Um, so, you know, when you see things like No Escape, where you've got all those extras, nowadays they just comp in these kind of digital 
all these characters in the background sort of copy and paste them. But seeing that, you know, things blow up and done within cameras is always far more exciting than seeing a digital representation of it because you know it's digital when you see them blow up a miniature and it's shot well, the scale of it's done really well. When you watch like Independence Day or whatever and you see a building blow up, it's far more satisfying seeing a miniature blow up than something done within the computer. And, you know, there's, there's films where you think, oh, my God, they you know, they didn't actually use CGI. They actually used miniatures. Like if you watch like The Matrix, the third one, they attack the, the human base underground, you know, um, and then you see all these miniatures going to smash to the ground and stuff. So there's always it's always quite exciting seeing that. I mean, it's like the Star Wars prequels as well, where most people think it's all CGI, but a lot there's a lot of miniatures in that film, which are kind of you don't actually know you're all completely unaware of um so the, the the beauty of those kind of old school movies and why we still like going back to them is seeing those action sequences for example is because they've used in-camera stuff and they've used miniatures because it's text it's there it feels like it's there it's got the grain to it and stuff and it's how it's lit when you see things you know with the 90s though with cgi where you had that kind of they started abusing it a bit too much you could tell it didn't look real you know but t- i think terminator 2 was kind of the, it shows you that evolutionary step um, of how CGI was going to be then taking over. Then we had Jurassic Park and so forth. With T2, you've got the in-camera effects, you've got the front projection, you've got the miniatures, but you've also got CGI used in with the T1000. So it's used sparingly and at the right time and not disused because they can afford to use it. And also, I just sort of like wonder, just in terms of just you shooting your first documentary feature and having made of all those sort of retrospective videos where you go into sort of like, um, production history. And I just wondered, in terms of when you were making this, did you use that sort of experience going in? Say, if you sort um, ran into a certain problem, you could think back to some of the many video retrospective videos you sort of made and go, "Oh, right, so it's kind of like this." And then if I do that, then it'll, <laughs> it'll kind of work out. Um, I suppose so. I suppose so, Tom. It was. It was. I suppose tackling it in the edit um, made it easier for me because I then already had, you know, like eight years experience with cutting my voiceover to clips. So I knew then how, you know, how and when, how to represent the clip when people are talking and working things out structurally uh, made it easier. Um, I had a great co-editor as well, Michael Peristeris, who, you know, who was a fan of my work and he'd reached out and he, and he told me he'd done all these, worked on these commercials and stuff. And he was, you know, a massive fan of, of the genre. And he knew more about the kind of early, early eighties action movies than I did. Like he knew, you know, his Mad Max st- stuff and uh, Chuck Norris. So I was like, great. Okay. Well then he'd, and he knew my style of editing as well. So he knew how to copy me and, and, and he sort of structured the first act of the documentary and I kind of took, took it over from the sort of, because it goes in a timeline. So 85 onwards, no, it was eight, no, 86 onwards, I sort of took over. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a slightly different beast, so to speak, from the retrospectives because, you know, it's me telling this story. But in the documentary, it's, you know, it's the talent. It's the actors, the writers, directors telling the story, not me. I'm just directing it. And there was some people who were a bit annoyed that I wasn't in it. You know, I was like, oh, bless them. But it's um, often the case is directors don't often appear in their, <laughs> in their documentaries about something else, um, which, you know, I, I, I do plan to make, you know, another documentary later this year. So um, that would probably feature me in it. But it's, um, but this one, it, I thought it was best wise to sort of, if you want this to sell, you want this to sell to a wider audience, 
I'm still kind of niche, really, on YouTube. You know, I don't have a million plus subscribers, whatever. So you have to sort of sell it on these people that are in this documentary and not me where someone's going, who's that? <laughs> you know, um, so yeah, that was a sort of, you know, creative choice. Well, just sort of drawing upon that in terms of your sort of like presenting sort of style, having watched your content for many years and seen you in front of the camera, was there anybody that you sort of looked up to or took inspiration from in terms of, of, of presenting? Well, I'd, I'd always watched, sort of, you know, I grew up watching BBC documentaries and programmes, so it was always kind of that was the approach, I suppose. Um, most people sort of <laughs> compare my sort of way of voiceover and talking to camera and especially when I've got an auto cue, <laughs> I like using the auto cue, is Barry Norman, is the BBC film show. So if you watched the Superman 4 documentary I did, it's kind of a bit like that with my sort of delivery and voiceover as well. So I suppose it creates a different, I suppose it lets the viewer know it's a bit more comfortable approach, you know, sort of a calmer delivery that you're kind of learning. Some people, at one point, People said I sound like I was I was doing the news, you know, but it, it's, it's it's different to how the Americans do it. The Americans can often be like very sort of always very confident and very shouting and like being over enthusiastic to a to a to a degree, like they're selling you a product. Um, so my my approach was a bit more kind of in line with what I saw with Barry Norman and sort of documentaries in general. I mean, that's something I actually picked up on because I was going to say in terms of your sort of style, it seems like sort of you're hosting sort of a mid-90s sort of like film show and Barry Norman and I would sort of equate that to. And I just think we sort of spoke about it briefly, but do you think people are kind of missing that sort of like warm and knowledgeable um, style? Because you don't often see it now because if you look at YouTube channels, it's either just people just shouting and being very, very angry or them having some sort of like political axe to grind. I definitely think on on TV, I've I've noticed a huge kind of shift of, especially in terms of focusing on film. You know, if you look at the BBC, BBC Four would be a prime example of what that sort of BBC is lacking in terms of variety. Because there's most BBC Four, they have wonderful sort of music documentaries, endless amounts of them, and I've watched them. Um, but it also, it must must be some sort of deal the BBC had with the sort of radio, like with the licensing of music for the radio. They can get they can use these songs for maybe a cheaper price. Um, but there's a lack of film documentaries. And Mark Mode had the sort of secrets of cinema stuff. I think he did. That was like four or five episodes he did, and he did a couple of specials, which are very interesting, and I, I enjoyed those. But if you go on YouTube, you can find tons of sort of programs from the 90s that dealt with film. There's loads of stuff. There's actually tons of it. And it's like it's a shame that they don't really see that as a sort of, you know, of interest to the audience, which is stupid, really, because everyone watches film, and people are going to be just as likely interested in, in the making of a movie or talking about it in general uh, than music um it's a similar similar fan base but we, you know in terms of youtube and stuff i think youtube itself is dominated by an american market and, and those personalities and sometimes very for very good reason because they they can be very good but also i you know the uk's tiny in that comparison in terms of my my audience as well is 75 percent american and you know and the rest is kind of england australia and and other, you know, sort of English-speaking parts of the world, where also you know, I think at places like Germany and and Japan, people that can, who do know English um, and do watch it. Yeah, it's it's hard to know if 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 on the YouTube platform there is this kind of need for 
sort of more of a warmer sort of approach to doing stuff in a more traditional way. But um, I think there is kind of in the retro gaming scene, there's kind of more of a push for that because it's more of a relaxed affair talking about, you know, video games or repairing computers of the past. But with movies, it's more like if it's a new movie, it's got to be sharp, quick delivery and tell people is a movie good or not in a short, short space of time as people want generally. So I've noticed that with my stuff, if I do a retrospective, which is like 30 minutes long, I'll try and make sure that review on a new movie is 10 minutes or less. So because people don't want spoilers, I just want to know if that movie is good or not. Are they going to waste their money that that weekend? But even if you tell them it's rubbish, they'll still go see it anyway and tell you you're wrong. <laughs> so, you know, that's what happens. Um, in terms of your style of reviewing, it doesn't get caught up in uh, for a point for about the sort of bullshit because uh, recently the Birds of Prey movies come out and they've said it's a feminist movie. They say that the black the black mask is a misogynist and there's all sorts of invective language to do around sort of identity politics. And the same thing could be said about Bad Boys Three that that in terms of some of the content that could be seen as sort of problematic. But when I watch your stuff, you seem to nimbly sort of sidestep that and literally say. Does the story work? Um, what's the how? What's the execution like? And am I? Did I enjoy myself at the cinema and not get caught up in the sort of like hoopla and marketing around that? Which I think is very. It's quite. It's very easy to get sort of like sucked into that sort of side of identity politics because you're just gonna by nature of it just get a lot more views and a lot more sort of positive and ne- negativity thrown at you just simply for where you sort of stand on that but you to me you seem to have a bit more of a sort of centralist i guess like in for one for better word, a normal cinema goer sort of like take on those particular films and i just wondered if that's something you'd sort of actively done or that's just naturally how your sort of content sort of fell i i don't try i never go out my way to throw politics or what is the current discussion about a particular movie because a certain side of the internet think a film is woke or pushing a feminist agenda or, you know, a right-wing agenda or left-wing agenda. Um, it's more about, as you say, it's kind of like, does this film work for me as a story? Are the performance is good. And did it entertain me? You know, I'm not concerned if this person's being cast because they're black. You know, it's not, it's not, it's, it's, it's not an issue for me. Um, but also you, you could play that card to guarantee, well, not, I suppose not guarantee, sort of play the game of getting more views, but then you just end up with attracting a sort of audience that are, I suppose, quite very vocal in a way to sort of attack you for attack you for things that you haven't said or maybe, or take things out of context to make a point. Um, you could review a movie that is politically difficult you know um in terms of how people are reacting to it at the time and you just say oh i I enjoyed this movie for these reasons and it's a fair and just review and and but they because you hadn't mentioned what's been discussed in the news then you are you know the reviews kind of downvoted and people hate you You think well that's a bit stupid you know um i couldn't hate a critic for saying something like that's not politically slightly off or you know, for example, like, you know, if um, Mark Commode or Robbie Collins say they don't like a particular movie, I'm not suddenly not going to say I don't like them anymore. I'll just be like, well, I just disagree with it. It's fine. It's great. Move on and and listen to their next review. Um, so I've always made this sort of conscious effort to sort of not put, set my toe into politics, first of all, because I'm not an expert in, in politics. You know, I, I'm, you know, kind of left leaning individual, but I don't. 
I don't go, you know, um, beating my drum on on social media to sort of push my thoughts because I, I I never studied politics. So you only kind of, you only see it through the news and what you learn from other people. Um, so I don't make, I don't make any plans to be an expert. And there's a lot of people that go online claim to be an expert when they haven't, they've just been influenced by another influencer. So you just have to sort of pick and choose who you should listen to really. <laughs> Let the experts talk about it really, not some random Joe who's been sort of vox popping going, Oh, I don't like these people, you know, and just, um, and that's it, you know? So it's, um, I think movies, and, there is a place for movies and politics, certainly. Um, and also, also because if the movie itself is dealing with politics and making a point um, that's going to either um, please or anger a certain audience, it should be discussed. Uh, in the context of that review, but it shouldn't be oneself pushing uh, one's polit- political agenda on people to re- in the course of just reviewing the movie. Should this be is the movie entertaining? Is the cast good? Is the story good? Does it live up to expectations? And for me, that should be it. And I think what's nice about your retrospectives that you do because some of the movies you're reviewing are like thirty years or like past. So in a way, they're not sort of like current. So you can literally judge that movie almost in a sort of like apolitical scenario because the current themes or trends running through that aren't as what well, aren't as current. So you can take it, you know, more as a film of, of what it is rather than what it represents within a particular time that it's been created. So I think that's sort of nice where you can sort of step back. And also just think about the production of a film. Um, one of the films I'm sort of looking forward to this year from a technical standpoint, rather than a story story one, is um the new uh, Top Gun film, Top Gun Maverick it's going to be the best aerial photography that you've ever seen, irrespective of the story. And that's why I'm sort of fascinated to go along and actually watch that movie. And I just wonder what your thoughts were um, about that, about sort of enjoying films from more sort of technical aspects. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, there's certain films where, you know, I know, like, like for example, Dunkirk, you know, I it wasn't something I was going to be, like, I have to know about this story. It was more about, like, it's Christopher Nolan. He's using, he's shooting it in 70 millimeter. He's shooting it in IMAX. I'm like, I am going to see that on the big screen. You just can't, you know, you can't miss that. You know, like Top Gun 2, you know, you know it's going to be shot on large format film. So on a technical standpoint, it's going to be just like, you know, draw dropping because you know Tom Cruise doesn't like CGI that much. You know, he likes doing things within camera. We've seen that Mission Impossible. He's done things which are, he goes above and beyond what an actor should do and a stuntman should be taking over, but he doesn't, does it himself in majority of cases, which is, uh, which is wonderful. So I know Top Gun is going to certainly look stunning. Like the, the, the first film by Tony Scott is a great looking movie and it's got wonderful music and it's kind of a bit thin on plot, but Top Gun 2 hopefully has more plot, you know, having really something there to sort of keep you engaged, not just be like eye-popping visuals. But I think it's, as it's been so long, hopefully they've got something that's kind of really worse to sort of bring you back into the world of Top Gun. But yeah, that is one movie that I'm going to be, I'm desperate to see on a big screen because you know, the guy who directed that, directed Tron Legacy, which was, again, a film you had to see on the big screen because it was visually stunning and it had that amazing score by Daft Punk and again that, that has like a bit of a flimsy story as well but you know it's it's a film I still love to watch just because of its technical achievements and you've often spoken about in your retrospective videos watching a film with an audience or friends so I just for you how important is the communal aspect of cinema I think it's very important, especially with horror. Horror is great to watch with an audience. Um, sometimes you get the wrong audience with you. You know, if you go see it on like a Friday night, nine o'clock showing, you, you know, if you're in London or something, you know, you're going to get people just talking, playing around their phones. It just drives you nuts. But 
most cases is is to get that audience reaction when something really sort of terrifying happens and it's great to sort of be there and you know same with sort of the big blockbusters when something really cool happens and i remember <laughs> in the, like avengers endgame you know when captain america picks up thor's hammer i was like oh my god that's like a, the nerd inside me was just like couldn't believe it and everyone else around me was just like cheering so it's a bit yeah like everyone sort of you know in unison does it all at once is, is quite a quite a cool experience but I've always watched films in my youth that sort of with friends and sort of, you know, you weren't at the time, you know, critiquing these movies, you were just kind of reacting to it. And, and that's why I never thought of myself as a sort of film critic when I sort of jumped into doing this. And when I was a projectionist, I'd, which, you know, preview movies and I'd talk about it with the other projectionists with me. We sort of, we, we would critique it in a way as we got older, but in my youth, it was more just about just everyone together sort of enjoying watching, I don't know, like blood sport or like, um, uh, sudden death or, or you know even like you know watching barbed wire which was a load of, load of toss um, but yeah it's you know it's always fun to watch films with friends do you think that in terms of like human experience is that where the film really like lives because yes you can watch it on netflix at home but to get the pr- true sort of intention of what the um, filmmaker was going for that you to make that film really live and breathe how it was intended to it has to be seen with an audience i think all films should be to a certain degree seen with an audience um it would be a shame it would be you know harsh of me to say if oh this particular movie shouldn't have an audience um i think you should always there's always gonna be films that you should see on the big screen i don't think every film as films i've missed at the cinema and decided to watch at home with you know my girlfriend or a friend or whatever because some films don't really need to be seen on a you know massive screen like i know for example um like Knives Out, I mean, it's not like a film you need to see like on an IMAX screen. You can happily watch it at home. But something like Rise of Skywalker, it's probably best to see that on a massive screen, you know, um, to take in all the visuals and the music and stuff. So, yeah, it's, 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 I suppose it's all personal preference, I suppose. You know, uh, some people always go to cinema, see, see all the latest movies come out. And they want to see it on the big screen because they want that experience to be in this kind of dark room with a massive big screen, not just at home on the couch watching it on this kind of, you know, flat screen TV. Um, one of the things you cover on your channel is remastering of films and you talk about what the filmmakers have done to the sound and uh, picture quality. I mean, why do you feel like remastering a film is important other than just sort of selling more copies? Uh, it's definitely to restore the picture to how it was really supposed to be seen and represented because as films have been transferred over the years to video, laser disc, DVD and Blu-ray and so forth, um, colours have shifted, prints have changed, you know, whoever's done the mastering at the time hasn't done a particularly good job. So, you know, there's a lot of controversy around obviously Terminator 2 and James Mar- James Cameron remastered that and changed a lot of the colours. Um, so that sort of, you know, upset people. And the case of Batman as well, the Tim Burton one, where it was... If you look at the Blu-ray, then watch, look at the 4K version, there's a lot of teal added to it and people saying, oh, this is actually how it's supposed to look, Oliver. I've got copies of it, you know, 35 millimeter, you know, stills of it, but it didn't actually look how they, you know, how it was supposed to look. And I spoke to one of the cameramen, they're like, nope, that's not how it's supposed to look. So studios have gone in and sort of adjusted movies to make it appeal to, I don't know, like younger people, adding teal makes it more appealing. I don't know. Um so I, I think it's important to sort of make sure that films are retain the original sort of director of photography's kind of look and the director's choices at the time, not someone who's come on th- 
you know, 20 years later and gone, oh, I think that needs some teal, you know. Some films also get changed all the time and it's subtly and you don't, and you're completely unaware. But I've covered movies that, you know, that I am very familiar with and thought, oh, that's been changed, you know, and I would love to talk about it. So that's why I've done things like Superman, Batman, and and there's things like The Matrix. The Matrix as well, that was all changed with the sequels where they made the first one more, they adjusted it so it looked more green, like two and three. But then the Blu-ray came out, the 4K one, they returned it to its original colour design, which they kind of zapped out a lot of the green and retained the original 35mm design. So it looks like when you watch it in 4K, it looks like you're watching film, and that's what it should be. It's one of my formative movies, the, the Tim Burton Batman movie changed the sound effects and how you A and B them together. And it was, and I thought, oh, sure, it can't make that much of a difference, but it really, really does. It does, doesn't it? It's so bizarre when I heard it, because they did the same on Superman in 2001. They changed, they had, they got beefed up the effects, like sound effects, explosions and so forth. But Batman, they, they went, I went, I think they went a bit too far. Like the gun, it's, it's the gun sound effects, isn't it? Really, that sort of makes you go, oh, that sounds weird. Because it, 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 it's strange in a way because they've modernised the guns. I think I put this out in a review actually. They've modernised the guns in the film, um, thus the guns sound like a bit like Batman's technology. Batman's technology is supposed to be quite advanced, but all the gun sound effects sound like from like old forties movies, which it was supposed to be because it shows Batman's using advanced technology. They're not, and it made it fit within that universe. Where if you modernise all the sound effects, it doesn't actually quite work in an artistic way. That's what they hadn't intended to do at the time. So yeah, it is a weird experience. I mean, you get more bass, you got more kind of. They really improved the surround sound of that film, the Dolby Atmos track. But once you start changing sound effects that sort of create the tapestry of what this film is, it sort of dilutes it. What it made me appreciate was in terms of just sort of sound design and and also like picture quality and how people will use different sort of filters and stuff and how you can have a great, like I really enjoy the Batman movie, but say if, it, if they had sort of had those sound original sound effects or they sort of like color timed it sort of differently, they can really, really throw you out, even though nothing's really sort of changed, but everything's changed. Yes, yes. But I think the problem lies with that they didn't give you an option. If they just kept the original audio mix for Batman 89 on the disc with the new mix, then it wouldn't be a problem because people go, well, I don't like this mix. I've listened to the old one. Uh, so with also with color grading as well, I mean, that's a, they probably wouldn't do that. And this was like an extended cut that you can go back to the original and see the original version, but how it was supposed to look with its uh, photographic design. But um, yeah, it's, it's always frustrating when they change things up, but then, don't give you the option to access what was before. Suppose it's a bit like the Terminator, where the Terminator had this 5.1 surround sound mix, but people loved the original mono track because Terminator was done on the cheap. They couldn't afford Dolby Stereo encoding at the time, so it was all done in mono. Um, but people like that original audio, so but they don't give it to you. They take it away. So it's frustrating as a film fan. The era of, sort of streaming, it seems the days of having large film libraries of stuff that sort of back out print seems to be kind of on the wane. And I was sort of thinking back to back in the day when I used to have like Netflix and they'd send, oh no, Love Movies, where they'd send the DVDs through the post and you could all sorts of stuff from Arrow all over the place, all tight and extreme stuff that you're just not going to get on um, streaming platforms anymore. And I just wondered, for you, is that sort of like a kind of a concern that even though we've got access to these massive film libraries that you can't get the more... Um, I guess like the more obscure, more um, fringe um, films that you perhaps were able to. Well, certainly. I mean, with, with streaming and stuff, we are you you are getting sort of uh, certain films just won't appear on the platform. 
know, we've all had Netflix. We've all still probably subscribed to Netflix and you saw that particular film on there a year ago. It's now gone. You know, and you're like, well, wait a minute. I thought, for example, like Forrest Gump or something. You're like, oh, I remember that was on Netflix like a year ago. Where's it gone? You know, it's disappeared because they license these movies for a certain period of time. Then they disappear. So people who have got rid of their collections because they could obviously run out of space like most people do. Uh, it gets too big or you're just not interested in keeping all these discs anymore. I think, okay, well, I'm just going to subscribe to Now TV or Netflix or Amazon Prime. Not Most people don't really subscribe to three platforms like that. I mean, I, I do Now TV and Netflix. So you have this kind of more Warner Brothers stuff and Disney stuff on Now TV and then Netflix have kind of more, I don't know, I suppose the other studios, <laughs> you know, that offer content. Um you know, as a film fan, you know, it's, I would always say to my friends, like, you know, it's, I think most film fans know it's, it's keeping hold of your physical stuff because they've all experienced that problem of like the film was on there. Now it's been taken away. And I don't think there's going to ever going to be one streaming platform that has everything because it's not because each studio wants their own streaming platform and they all want to compete. For me, I usually upgrade if I upgrade to like a 4K disc, I make, always make sure if the Blu-ray I'm replacing if all the extras are, dis- are have been ported over, if they haven't, I'll keep it because I may need to use it in future. I've got done that before. I've got rid of a disc and think, oh no, all the extras I had in that Blu-ray aren't on the 4K disc. I'm like, oh, I've got to get now reacquire it. So yeah, I try and keep hold of everything in terms of my movie collection. But it's a point where I do stop kind of not collecting, but do I really need it? You know, do I really need that? Do I go? Am I going to use it in future? With 4K, 4K titles, there seems to be a lack of kind of remastering old stuff at the moment. There isn't much on the horizon. What's what's you know what's to look forward to on the platform? So it's mostly new films. So I'm going to a little bit like, mm, do, I, do I really need to buy a new 4K disc of this movie? I'm like, nah. I'll just wait till there's like a you know a remastered of an old classic I want. But yes, yeah, as I say, you know, streaming platforms aren't won't hold everything. There's always going to be something that's going to be missing from. Your, your favorite collection of movies. Um, you were saying in the Q&A that you've licensed the biggest independent distributor to distribute your um, your documentary. I mean, how, have you, how do you sort of like view sort of physical media and the sort of streaming? And do you think there's going to be a point where they're not going to be making any more sort of like 4K discs or, or players and it just simply is just going to be you have to subscribe to every sort of streaming service to get the kind of content you want? Um, I think there's always going to be, a, there's always going to be a, a place for physical media. The studios will still keep making it because they still make a profit. Doesn't you know, obviously that profit's kind of shrinking, but it's not like to the extent where it's like now a dead business, not at all. There is obviously some manufacturers like Samsung have pulled out of making players. You just have to go go buy a player from from another brand. But I don't see physical media stopping. We've seen the return of vinyl as well. People love physical stuff. People love seeing those gatefold covers. That's what kind of attracted me to like Laserdisc, where you have got like a massive gatefold cover of like GoldenEye or Highlander. It's like amazing when your friends come around and look at it and go, "Wow, this is incredible." I don't think I don't see it going away. They will. You will see this kind of prices may rise for those kind of films, and they'll obviously they'll end up providing a little bit more for you to make you buy it, like have more special features, and and obviously there's more kind of independent labels. In terms of my scenario, um, you know, we sold to a distributor, and then they were because they handle everything worldwide, so on digital platforms, and. You can get it on disc through them, but it's like it's MOD, it's like made on demand through on, on Amazon. So I think it's Amazon.com, I think. 
so yeah, so it, it's great that there's always going to be option to have the digital and the physical. But I mean, I mean some films, I, I'm not particularly fussed about having um, having a physical copy. If I've downloaded it digitally, you know, from through iTunes or whatever, then I'm happy to keep it that way. But it's also the point where do you suddenly lose access to it? It's that digital rights management, isn't there? Where it's like, it's like video games. That game I bought on a 360, digitally downloaded it. Will I still be able to play that in 10 years? Or just because because the server's been taken away, they can't. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult one, isn't it, for, for people who love collecting media. But I don't see it, you know, say, disappearing altogether in terms of film, and maybe with video games. I don't know, with the next generation. Probably, because they'll all be, like, library-based. And then where do you house that? Um, where does it go, and does it still run? Oh, exactly. It's like it's massive. Your console's going to have, like, next maybe next generation or the one after that, your console's going to have, like, a 10-terabyte hard drive you know what i mean it's like i was trying to update the new call of duty and it's like it's like a hundred gigabyte patch it's a hundred gigabyte patch are they mad and i was just like i'm not done i'm not i'm not playing that anymore i'm not gonna let that eat up my memory (laughs) you know so i just thought i just left it there but also you do do like a let's play series i've noticed as well alongside your sort of retrospectives where you play through like more one and so I can sort of just name off the top of my head. I mean, in terms of sort of like video game and that sort of side of things, I mean, how how heavily invested are you into sort of like video games and sort of expanding that alongside? Because as I say, you do cover them in your retrospectives as well. Um, you know, I grew up with video games, you know, as well, because I was born in 82. So I didn't, I started playing games in like 89, I think it was, playing NES or Nintendo. Then I got a Commodore 64 and then Mega Drive, Super Nintendo, then 3DO and Saturn. Yeah, I was a bit obsessed with games, <laughs> you know. I was, yeah, I that was my youth actually. It was video games and movies, and more so video games actually, because I just I just plowed through players' guides and video game magazines and watched everything on TV like Games Master, Bad Influence, and had Sky TV and watched watch Games World. Um, so yeah, I I knew I know you know I know quite a lot about you know, those games at the time and they sort of stuck with me. So as a hobby, it is a hobby, you know, with, with um, playing video games. And I, I do like talking about them as well, as well, like including them in my retrospectives and doing Let's Plays on the side, which is just a bit of fun. So I can, you know, talk about a particular game like Mortal Kombat or Resident Evil or Street Fighter. So yeah, it's, that's, that's the kind of sort of the fun side of doing stuff for YouTube where I don't really care about if it gets any views, really, uh, that's not my sort of bread and butter. It's just like, I need to do that bit on the side for a bit of fun. But uh, my next documentary I'm, I'm planning to do is on a video game series called Street Fighter 2. So that's going to be sort of accumulating and sort of covering a lot of my of my youth from like 91 to like 94. So that's a sort of the golden era of Street Fighter 2. So that's um, yeah, where I can push my nerdy video game knowledge to the max, I suppose. <laughs> So I just kind of had like one final question to wrap up with you. What uh, TV show, film and video game are you most looking forward to in 2020? Oh, um, I suppose 2020, it would be Top Gun 2 in terms of a movie and video game. Oh, that's a tough one, actually. Wait a minute. There's a new Predator game coming out in April. My friend was talking to me about, and I was like, yes, I want to play that. It's on a PS4, isn't it? But I don't know. I, don't, I haven't seen any footage of it or any any other news about it i was like that sounds interesting i want to play that and uh um tv shows wise i don't i, I don't think there's any tv show coming up that i'm just like <gasps> need to see maybe it's just gone disappeared out of my mind i mean i did like the toys that made us you know um show so 
They, you know, I mean, they did Ninja Turtles and Transformers. I think it was Power Rangers. I think the best video they did was was on wrestling, WWE action figures or WWF at the time. That was really interesting, despite me having no interest in wrestling. But so, yeah, they've got, hopefully they'll do another toy series featuring stuff I owned, like, I don't know, Brave Star or Visionaries or something. <laughs> but um, no, it wasn't particularly, you know, TV show wide. But yeah, double, I think, yeah, Top Gun, maybe 007 um, out this year. And um the Predator game, probably. So there you have it. I had a great time chatting with Oliver. Please do like and subscribe to the show on SoundCloud and YouTube and drop a comment or two. And you can get in touch with me at the Salmoning01 on Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. I've been Tom and I'll catch up with you next episode.